We continue our series today in uh, the book of First Peter. The Apostle Peter, of course, the sort of leader of the uh, inner circle of Jesus' disciples. And then after Jesus' resurrection and ascension and the first sort of movement of the Christian church, Peter was the most prominent figure for, uh, for a good while. And the, the first roughly half of the book of Acts, or not quite a half, uh, is focused on Peter's ministry. And it is this Peter who spent so much time intimately with the Lord in his uh, earthly ministry and now leading this Christian movement uh, who writes this letter of 1 Peter to Christians in Asia Minor. We've determined it's a largely probably Gentile audience, which is not to say there aren't Jewish Christians among the recipients of this letter, but most of the churches in this region probably would have been largely Gentile. And he writes this letter to struggling Christians who live on the edges of society. He calls them in multiple places exiles, aliens, sojourners in their earthly homes. They don't belong here. And of course, that's always been the reality for the church of Jesus Christ. But in this time, as Peter and these disciples are experiencing, and perhaps in our own day, this reality that the distinctness of Christ's kingdom can be seen even more starkly, perhaps, than in previous generations. Specifically, if you're thinking of American Christianity, the day that we live in is very different than even just a generation or two before us. The rapid secularizing of our society is often the cause of fear and unease on the part of Christians who want to remain faithful to Scripture, but who increasingly feel the pressure of the world to acquiesce, to give in to their value systems and just conform to the world's ways of thinking and believing, understanding identity and ultimate reality and to whom are we accountable and all of these things are at the very root of what it means to be a Christian. And every one of those questions is diametrically opposed in the value system of our world. And so it can feel as though we are living as strangers and exiles and aliens in our own homes. Speaking of this issue of the the sort of strangeness of Christianity in our day, Russell Moore, who is the president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, and has also written an excellent book called Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. In this book, Onward, he says this, If we ever were a moral majority, we are no longer. As the secularizing and sexualizing revolutions were on, it is no longer possible to pretend that we represent the real America, a majority of God-loving, hard-working, salt-of-the-earth cultural conservatives like us. Accordingly, we will engage the culture less like the chaplains of some idyllic Mayberry and more like the apostles in the book of Acts. We will be speaking not primarily to baptized pagans on someone's church roll, but to those who are hearing something new, maybe for the first time. We will hardly be normal, but we should never have tried to be. And so the strangeness of our faith, as it does not fit into our culture, into the values of our society, should not be regarded as bad news. 
Though it might cause us fear or worry at times, we should see this as a welcome opportunity to be gospel people in a culture that has no understanding of what that means. We have a message to share and a life to live that is radically different than what the world has to offer and what they know. Our passage today is only two verses long. We're in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The big idea that I see in these verses and that I hope to convey to you in the message today is this. With our witness in the world at stake, we must wage war against our sin. With our witness in the world at stake, we must wage war against our sin. And of course, you see the language of war is right here within the text. He gives a command The command is abstain from the passions of the flesh. And then there's two reasons, essentially, that he gives and and we'll unpack those together. The first reason is that our sinful desires are actually at war with our own souls. And the second reason is that our holy conduct is a witness to the world. And so we'll focus on this this command to begin with, abstaining from the passions of the flesh. So he begins in verse 11, Beloved, I urge you. And beloved there, I believe Peter here is calling the reader's attention to the love of God. I don't think he's merely saying, loved by me, Peter the apostle. I think he's reminding them that you, as God's people, are loved by him as he opened this whole letter, calling us elect exiles, right? You are the chosen exiles of God. So you live out of your home. You live in a place where you don't fit, but you're his. He's chosen you. He's placed his affection upon you and you belong to him. And now again, as he turns his attention to the church's relationship with the world around us, he reminds us of the love of God, beloved, beloved by God. And structurally speaking, if you're just looking through the entire letter here, this signals a new section. So what he's been doing up to this point after the opening verses where he just celebrated the grace of God in Jesus Christ and the new birth and the living hope and the internal inheritance, the eternal inheritance that he's purchased for us. He, since verse 13 of chapter 1, he's been speaking to the church about how we live together, Right? The, the holiness to which he's called us, the love, the brotherly love to which he has uh, birthed us in order to live. He called us to feed on the word of God, the pure spiritual milk that we might grow up together. And then the verses we looked at a couple of weeks ago, uh, verses 4 through 10 of chapter 
2 all have to do with our new identity as the people of God, those who have been purchased by Jesus Christ and God has made his own possession, right? All of that is kind of internal church life. Here's who we are. Here's how we ought to live together. He turns here and the next two chapters worth of material uh, have to do with the way that the church relates to the world around us. And so he starts to look outward. So if this is who you are, here's how you ought to live and relate to a society that doesn't welcome you, a world that doesn't understand you and in many ways rejects you. And so he begins here in verse 11 to point us to outward realities. But he starts, interestingly, by pointing us to an inward reality, namely the war that's going on in our own hearts. And he says here, I urge you to abstain. We'll come back to the sojourner stuff. I urge you to abstain. And so the, the grammar here has the effect of an imperative, that is a command, even though it doesn't say it that way. He doesn't say, abstain from the passions of your flesh. That would be an imperative, a command. But it has the sense, right? It has the, the force of a command. I am urging you to abstain. But it gives it the tone of a personal plea. I think Peter is placing himself here sort of as though he's grabbing our heads a little bit, like making eye contact, going, please get the importance of this. Listen to this. I urge you to abstain. And then he, again, he calls us sojourners and exiles. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, which is a reminder of our place in the world. We belong to God and we don't belong here, just as Jesus said, right? We're in the world, but we're not of the world. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, the world hates you. That's what Jesus said to his disciples. And Peter is, uh, has experienced that and is now bringing this same sense and same message to Christians in his own day. In Peter's mind, our status as outsiders makes this exhortation the more urgent. The fact that he doesn't just say, I urge you to abstain from the passions of your flesh. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles reminds us, gives us a context of a world in which we live where we don't fit. So that's what is in mind when he gives us this ethical, moral command to abstain from the passions of our flesh. The command to abstain is connected to the idea in verse 12 that our conduct has an impact on the unbelievers around us. So in other words, with your witness in the world at stake, live holy lives. That's the, that's the, 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 the logic of what Peter is saying here. Because the world around you sees you and your conduct will have an impact on them, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. That is a striking phrase. The passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Wait, whose desires are we talking about here? Whose passions are we talking about? Ours, the passions of our flesh. But they wage war against whose soul? Ours. We have desires and affections and instincts that are actually enemies of our souls. 
There's a World War II film from, I don't know, 98, 99, somewhere around there called The Thin Red Line. And uh, it includes a scene where an American battalion on the island of Guadalcanal is trying to uh, capture a Japanese bunker on the top of this large hill. Of course, the journey trying to get up the hill is very treacherous as the Japanese soldiers are firing on them and all this. And one of the soldiers, a guy named Sergeant Heck, reaches for a grenade on his belt and accidentally grabs it by the pin leaving the grenade still attached to his belt. And if you understand how a grenade works, that thing detonates a few seconds after you pull that pin out. So instead of getting the grenade, he has the pin in his hand and realizes in a flash of horror that the grenade is now about to detonate and it's still on his belt. Realizing his fatal error, he jumps away from the other men in his company to ensure that he would be the only casualty of this tragic mistake. And then it happens and his fellow soldiers come to his side as he passes away. It's, just, it's, it's a tragic scene. But as a fallen sinner, born again by God's Spirit, you have innate desires and instincts that actually sabotage the health of your soul. When you act upon these desires, Peter is telling us, you essentially pull the pin on your own grenade while it's still attached to your belt. We are warring against ourselves when we give in, when we indulge these fleshly passions. So this is dangerous. It is dangerous business. It is dangerous for our own souls to allow these passions of the flesh to to continue and to to grow and to, to feed them and indulge them. Because what you feed grows. And so he's urging us here, abstain from the passions of your flesh because they're actually your enemies. We have a war inside our hearts, a war inside our own souls going on with our conflicting desires and the things that we naturally, instinctively are drawn toward because we're fallen and sinful are things that actually are doing damage to our souls and our ability to know God and to live in a way that pleases Him. And while these desires wage war against our souls internally, they also sabotage our witness for Jesus Christ in the world, dampening our effectiveness as representatives of Him to the unbelieving people around us. When our speech is littered with insults or obscenities, it undermines our call to love others and to give grace to those who hear us. When our arguments about political opinions become intense and divisive, we show ourselves to be following a different king than Christ. When our behaviors online or our entertainment choices cross lines of propriety, and indulge sexual lusts and the like, we damage our credibility to speak and lead on moral issues in our day and in our culture. When we organize our lives around work and productivity, slavishly laboring to pile up as much material wealth as possible, we cheapen our own profession of Christ as the treasure of our hearts. We sing on Sunday mornings, Jesus, you are enough. With nothing, I still have everything. 
And then we live throughout the week as though what I really need is a bigger paycheck, right? We cheapen and undermine our own ability to speak for Christ and to represent him by the way that we indulge in our own perverted, sinful desires. It's a hard place to live. In a lot of ways, it's much easier to just live as an unbeliever. We have these desires. We'll just give in to them, right? Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Sort of that philosophy. It's a lot easier. But now we have new desires that have been placed within us that don't match, that are in conflict. Our hearts seek to sabotage us all the time. We have conflicting, contradictory desires within us, which means that the Christian life is war. It's a battle. There is a war raging within each one of our souls with the desires of our fallen flesh mounting a constant assault against the ways of God and the new desires and purposes that he's placed there. We know just from a few verses earlier that we've been born again by the seed of God's word, this imperishable, eternal, unbreakable seed. We have the life of Christ within us, right? We're his. We belong to him. He's called us to be holy. And yet, we still have these nagging, problematic desires that lead us in the exact opposite direction, that lead us away from God and his ways. So what do we do? What do you do with this? Fight, fight, fight. Stay in the battle. Don't give up ground to the enemy. As John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That is the reality in which we live as fallen sinners redeemed by Christ with conflicting desires. You know, I think of God's word to Cain back in Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel were brothers, of course, and Cain was angry and jealous of his brother Abel, whom God had received his offering and wouldn't receive Cain's, and so Cain is beginning to stew, right? He's letting anger and bitterness grow up in his heart toward his brother, and God comes to him with a word of warning. He says, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you but you must rule over it. Interestingly, that language there of sin's desire being contrary to him, actually, or some translations say its desire is for you, is the very same language that was used of Adam and Eve after the fall when God said to Adam and Eve, her desire shall be for her husband or contrary to her husband, and he will rule over her. It's the same language of conflicting interests where one is trying to gain power over the other. And that's what sin is desiring to do for Cain. He says sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you. That is, it is trying to control you. It is trying to win you. But you must rule over it. We know how that went for Cain. He did not succeed in that fight. And when Cain and Abel were in a field together and the opportunity arose, Cain struck him down. The consequences were terrible. Sin is not a passive enemy. 
It is embedded within our hearts and it is working around the clock to pull us away from Christ and to make us ineffective witnesses. It's always at work. So if we get slack in our pursuit of Christ, guess who's going to gain ground? Sin. Our fallen fleshly desires, those passions of the flesh that Peter's talking about. This is going to gain ground if we get lazy, if we get complacent in our own walk with God and our pursuit of Him. If we don't allow ourselves to feed on His Word, the pure spiritual milk, right? Peter's already said that's the way you grow up. If you want to grow up into salvation, you must crave the pure spiritual milk. Feed on the Word of God. If we get lazy about that, our sin is gaining ground all the time. We're feeding the wrong thing, and it's growing. God help us. We need His strength at work in us. So we should take stock of our own lives. We should examine our own practices. We should look to our own hearts and see, am I giving ground? Am I giving a foothold in my life to sin? Am I making provisions or excuses or justifications for those sinful desires that crop up? It won't really hurt anybody. It's not that big a deal. Just this one time. I deserve this, right? We have all manner of little ways that we sort of justify what we want to do that we know is wrong. And the more we do that, the more we feed those desires and the more they grow. So we need to take stock of our own lives and we need to plead with God to give us his strength in this battle. We need his energy at work in us. But beyond our own spiritual health, and the glory of God reflected in our own lives, Peter is concerned to ensure that the holy conduct of the church will provide a strong, credible testimony to Jesus Christ for the unbelieving world around us. And so he transitions into verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. The Gentiles, it's interesting that he uses the word Gentiles here because as we've already pointed out, this is a largely Gentile audience. So he's not speaking to his audience as though they are enemies or outsiders, right, in terms of the faith. What I think he's doing is really what he's been doing throughout this letter, which is taking images and language and identities that would have corresponded to old covenant Israel and applying them to the church of Jesus Christ. And I think he's doing the same thing here because to, to Israel... The Gentiles were the outsiders, right? They were the ones that the ones that were not a part of the covenant people of God. But now, with the church seen as the this expanded Israel, if you will, the, the new and full people of God, Jew and Gentile, who are trusting in Jesus Christ, the Gentiles becomes those who are outside the covenant of faith in Christ, right? So essentially, unbelievers. When he says, "Keep your conduct among the Gentiles." Honorable, he's speaking about those around us in the world who do not know Christ. So keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among unbelievers around you, honorable. So what is honorable conduct? I think here he is simply stating positively what he stated negatively in verse 11. So in verse 11, he, he has to do with what we're suppressing, right? Abstain from the desires of the flesh. 
or the, the passions of the flesh, right? So the negative of it is don't let the passions of the flesh sort of grow and take control of you. And in verse 12, he states it more positively, keep your conduct honorable. I think it's just the opposite. So it's the, the same, maybe flip sides of the same coin here. In verse 11, his concern was for the church to abstain from sinful desires. And here in verse 12, it's for the church to conduct themselves honorably, which obviously has more to do with what's visible. That's another distinction to be made there. Verse 11 and the desires of the flesh. You can't see the desires of my flesh. They're down here. They're mine and you don't know about them unless I tell you about them or unless I act on them in some public way, right? And so that's an internal reality that he's speaking to in verse 12, uh, verse 11. And in verse 12, he begins to get, he get, begins to think about the public witness of Christians to the world around us. And so I think it's the same basic reality as we, as we, abstain from the passions of the flesh and pursue righteousness, holiness of life, then what is visible is the fruit of a godly life, the fruit of the Spirit in us. And all of this, of course, harkens back to his broad exhortation in chapter 1, verse 15. As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. And here again, his concern is for the salvation of unbelievers in our communities. That they might see, right, your good deeds. So he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that, this is interesting, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Why? Why would unbelievers be inclined to speak against Christians as evildoers? What evils might the culture, the, the society around the church place on the church, see in the church as evil things? What, what might they say, this is the way that Christians are that we don't approve of, that we regard as morally uh, repugnant? Well, in Peter's day, of course, he's writing to an audience in the first century here. In Peter's day, it was probably things like sectarianism, like we're kind of in this exclusive club and nobody else belongs. Uh, probably charges like sedition. That is, they, they were seen as, as perhaps uh, traitors to the empire because they lived in the Roman Empire, but they did not submit in the same ways to the Roman government. Now, they did submit, and in fact, next week's passage uh, is an exhortation to Christians to live in a responsible and godly way under uh, civil authorities. So we'll, we'll talk about that next week. And so it's not as though they were bad citizens, but they did not engage in the cult worship and the emperor sort of deification that, that was a part and parcel to Roman citizenship. And so they were seen as traitors, right? They're, they're not loyal to Caesar. And so they might have been seen in, in those kinds of ways. This is a weird one, but Christians in that day were actually sometimes charged with cannibalism. Probably, you could guess, based on the Lord's Supper, right? There are these people, and they get together every week, and they eat flesh and drink blood. Like, those rumors go around about Christians in the first century. And so there are people who literally charge them with this, with, with cannibalism, that they're having these crazy parties where they're eating people. Obviously, that's not real. That's not a right understanding of what the Lord's Supper is. But that rumor goes about. And so there's ways that the culture thinks of the church as evil. Some of them 
unfounded, like cannibalism, they just misunderstand. Some of them because they simply are living from a different set of values, a different code. So what would that be in our own day? How might our society, 21st century America, look at the church as evildoers? What sort of evils might they accuse us of? I can think of a few. Maybe you've heard things like this. Christians are all judgmental, right? Or hypocrites, right? They, they, they say they have this high standard of what somebody should look like, but they're not even doing the same things. Maybe they're bigots, right? Homophobic, transphobic, etc. They hate people who are different. You ever hear people speak that way of Christians? Maybe they see Christians as desperate for political power. Sometimes the church, the evangelical branch of Christianity in particular, is seen as sort of uh, just a, a, another sort of lobby for the Republican Party, right? So there's, there's all kinds of ways that, that people in our society might look at the church with these judgments. Judgmental, hypocritical, bigoted, desperate for political power, etc. You could probably think of others that you've seen or heard. And some of those are unfounded. They're just untrue and misunderstandings. Some of them are simply because we're living from a different code. We're living from a different set of ethics and values. And we're taking our cues from the word that we believe came from the God of the universe. And the world around us goes, there's no God of the universe. I am who I want to be. I'm not accountable to you or anybody else. And so at the very beginning, we have a fundamental disagreement about the way we order our lives. And so some of those things are absolutely just inevitable outworkings of the fact that we live from two different foundations, two different worldviews. But here's what Peter has in mind. When the society around you calls you an evildoer, their testimony against you should be undermined, that is proven to be false, by the way that you live. Your conduct, your honorable conduct in public to the world around you ought to actually make those charges sound false. So when somebody says Christians are all just judgmental, when they spend time with you, they should come away going, huh, he's not as judgmental as I thought he would be. Or Christians are all homophobes. When they spend time with you or talk with you about that issue, they they should come away going, well, maybe we don't agree, but I don't think he hates those people. Right? That's the, the effect that our lives ought to have on unbelievers around us. They should, their charges should be found baseless because of the conduct of our lives. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, I believe that Peter has in mind here the salvation of sinners. There are other, there's another, there's kind of two main ways that people land on this text or or commentators kind of think that Peter's talking about. Some people think that Peter's talking about judgment. Like when Christ comes as judge, which we know he will, um, then let your conduct prove that they were wrong and they'll be judged and you'll be vindicated. And that's not an unreasonable thing to think. But I think that Peter has in mind here actually the positive, redemptive 
uh, vision of sinners actually converted, of, of sinners transferred from darkness to light because of, at least in part, because of the testimony, the visible testimony of a holy church. There's a couple of reasons I think that. I think he has this positive, redemptive hope in mind for at least two reasons. One within this letter and one from somewhere else in the scriptures. The the first reason is this. Peter uses the very same concept and language in chapter 3, verse 2, where he's speaking in that context to wives. And he's urging wives to be subject to their own husbands so that, look at verse 2 of chapter 3, even if some of them do not obey the word, that is, some husbands are not Christians, they have not obeyed the word, that is, by believing the gospel, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So in other words, the wordless testimony of a Christian wife may have a saving effect on her husband. Not in itself, of course, but insofar as it points him toward Christ and his gospel. And I think that's the same idea that's expressed here in chapter 2, verse 12, that they might see your conduct and give glory to God. I think he means that they would, in the same way as these husbands, be won by the conduct of a holy church. The second reason I think that is that he is almost certainly here referring to the words of the Lord himself in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. Words that you probably know, where Jesus says, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think Jesus is talking there about the salvation of sinners who see the, the holy and pure and good conduct of God's people and are drawn toward him and then find in Christ the grace of forgiveness and salvation and thereby give glory to their father. So I think that's what Peter has in mind here, that our conduct as the church might actually have the effect of drawing sinners closer to God. That perhaps the objections and the barriers that they've raised Maybe of these even false charges of our judgmentalism or hypocritical, what's the word of that? Hypocrisy. I could not find the noun form of that word. There it is. Um, Our hypocriticalness. Um, Maybe it's those charges that sort of get, they kind of lose their power because when they see the way that we live and they get to know us and they have conversations with us, they go, actually, they have something that I wish that I had. There's something here that I think that I need. And the door is now open for the gospel of grace to come through. So keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that some of them, of course not all of them, some of them might be drawn toward Christ by our lives. That's a good question to ask ourselves. Is our life Are our lives more likely to draw people toward Christ or push people away from him? The way that we treat other people, the way that we speak of image-bearing human beings, even if they're different. 
the honorableness of our conduct, the way we behave online, on social media, etc.? Is our behavior more likely to draw somebody toward Christ or push somebody away from him? Are we strengthening their arguments against Christians or are we weakening them? By God's grace, we should be weakening them. We should be drawing people closer to Christ because of our holiness of life. How can we do this? That's a big question that comes to my mind. How are we to abstain from the passions of the flesh and to keep our conduct honorable? And I hope you won't mind if, I'll, if I actually ask for the Apostle Paul to help us out on this front. And you could flip with me to the book of Galatians. Not that every passage of Scripture needs to be a how-to list of do this and then do that and here's step three and all that. But I think it'll help us to get a sense of maybe what, what Paul would exhort us to do along these very same lines. So in verse chapter 5 of Galatians, in verse, fix, excuse me, verse 16, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. I think he's talking about the exact same reality as Peter. Peter says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And that's what Paul has in view here when he says that you won't gratify the desires of the flesh. Keep looking. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. He's expressing now the very war that we've been talking about. The very war that Peter refers to. The passions of our flesh are waging war against us. And Paul expresses this even more clearly by saying, you have the spirit in you and you have your fallen desires and these desires contradict each other. They fight against one another. And then he's going to express what the fruit of the flesh looks like. Look at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. And we get this really beautiful list. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Man, that is not a pleasant list. And he could keep going. He says, things like these? That means there's a whole lot more that I don't have time to list thing by thing. Your heart is very creative in the kinds of sins it can come up with, right? Things like this. That's the works of the flesh. That's down there. That's going on. We have these impulses and these instincts that drive us toward all of these forbidden, twisted, God-dishonoring things. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit, who's in you, right? He's in you. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Which list sounds better to you? Against such things there is no law. And here's the crucial puzzle piece. Look at verse 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. That's the key here. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. To walk by the Spirit means, at least in part, that we rest ourselves in the completed work of Jesus on our behalf. It means that we rehearse in our minds and repeat to our hearts that Christ has been crucified for us and that it is His life that is now being lived out through us. We must know, believe, remind ourselves of and rehearse the gospel over and over and rest on the reality that who we are, we are because of Him, because of what He accomplished on the cross for us. That's where walking by the Spirit starts. It starts in recognizing Jesus as the one who crucified our flesh when He died on the cross. So, let me ask you just a few questions. Number one, have you placed your trust in Jesus Christ, in His death in your place, for the forgiveness of your sins, for the crucifixion of your fleshly passions and desires? This is where the journey begins. And it's the shape of the journey at every stage. The shadow of the cross provides the ground and power for our daily walk with God and our ongoing struggle with indwelling sin. Are you trusting in Christ and his work on the cross? Number two, are you feeding your soul on God's word? As Peter already exhorted us in chapter two, verses one through three, to grow up into salvation Long for the pure spiritual milk, the milk of the word. As we come to God's word, we're inviting his spirit to form our minds, to shape our understanding of his ways, to reveal to us areas of sin and weakness where we are prone to temptation and unfaithfulness. Are you giving God the opportunity to do this in your heart through his word? Finally, do you invite the counsel and admonition of sisters and brothers in Christ to help you see your own blind spots. Sometimes the things that we struggle with are more obvious to people around us than they are to us. Are you inviting your brothers and sisters in Christ to speak to you about those things, to gain a window into your heart and life in order to hold you accountable, to pray for your growth and protection? That's what the church is for. We need one another. God's placed us in this family together, knowing that we all have this internal battle going on, but we've got brothers in arms and sisters in arms, right? We're fighting this thing together. Let's go. I'll hold you up. You hold me up. Where you're weak, maybe I'm strong and vice versa. Maybe where I really struggle, you are farther along and can give me help and perspective and uh, and encouragement along the way. Our witness in the world is at stake in the lives that we live. That's what Peter is calling us to. And that's a sober thought. It's a a sombering reality that the way that we carry out our lives would have such an effect on people around us, either to draw them nearer to Christ or to drive them away from him. I'm going to close with this uh, quote from Scott McKnight who says, The first task for Christians in society is to live before God in love and holiness in such a way that culture sees the radical difference 
between the two worlds. We must leave no room for accusations against us for the way we live. To live in holiness and love will mean adopting a countercultural life when that culture, culture opts for a less, excuse me, a way less than God's will. It may involve some kind of social exclusion and suffering, for that is what happens to faithful Christians in faithless contexts. Like Peter's churches, we may become aliens and strangers, but Peter's letter provides a means of coping with this kind of stress, a message that permits us to structure ourselves against that culture in a healthy, God-pleasing way. May the Lord give us, by his Spirit, the strength to live in such a way.